0: Morning. Um, This is the second in a series that we're doing through the book of Ruth. Um, So two weeks ago, Steve talked about Ruth 1, Ruth chapter 1. This morning, I'm going to be looking at Ruth chapter 2. So the story so far, we have... um, I'm not sure if the PowerPoint's working yet. I'm sure they'll give me a nod in a minute. Um, Naomi and her husband and her two sons moved to Moab, a country which was about 20 miles from their homeland. So about Newport, okay? Not very far from Bethlehem. (laughs) I know, it's a long way. Foreign country, all that. Um, But that's about how far they'd moved. But they'd moved to another nation to escape from um, famine, to escape hardship and trials So they'd moved as a family. The boys got married to local women. And then Naomi's husband died. So the the head of the household had gone. But it's okay because there's still two boys there, married, family's still there. And then both of the boys died. So Naomi and one of her um, daughter-in-laws moved back to Bethlehem. Um, And they moved back to her hometown. But, of course, Ruth is now a foreigner in a strange land. So this is where we start here. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of the harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. "'Watch the field where the men are harvesting "'and follow along after the women. "'I've told the men not to lay a hand on you, "'and whenever you are thirsty, "'go and get a drink from the water jars "'that the men have filled.' "'At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. "'She asked him, "'Why have I found such favor in your eyes "'that you notice me, a foreigner?' Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your homeland and came to live with your people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Um, even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she'd gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. Apparently that's about a week's worth of food. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she'd gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she'd left over after she'd eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He's not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth, the Moabite, said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. It's a lovely story and for those of us that have grown up in church, we kind of know how it ends. For those that were here two weeks ago, the, the assemblies team from school showed us how that story ends. She ends up as the great-grandmother of King David. But the thing is, King, but Boaz and Ruth probably never, ever knew that. They would have been dead a long time before that. So that's not important to her. It's not important to Ruth. It's lovely for us to look at. It's lovely for us to know. It's not important for Ruth or Boaz. And sometimes we can look at this as a bit of a love story, because, spoiler alert here, they get married in the end. (laughs) But actually, when we're looking at this chapter, that's not the point of it. That's not what was going on here. Okay, This is not part of a love story, this bit. And they were just living this. This was their life. This was their day by day. So when we look at Boaz... He is the one that is privileged. He has huge, huge privilege in this society. But what we see is that he's a good boss. He provides shelter for his workers. His workers allow others to come in to his field. They're not expecting him to suddenly turn up and go, why on earth are you doing that? This was his normal practice. He was generous. He knows his own workforce. He walks in and the moment he sees Ruth there, who's this? He knows that that's not part of his normal workforce. He's a good boss. He is law abiding. The law said, allow people to come and glean. And his workers know that actually he allows this. This is normal for him. This is not something that's new. He allows this. This is the type of boss he is. He looked out for the vulnerable. When we read in verse 5, him saying, who does, he, who does she belong to? we kind of bristle and go, She doesn't belong to anybody. But in her society, she did. Anyone that was gleaning was a family that was poor. This was a vulnerable family. If they had sent their woman out to glean, this was a vulnerable family. He wants to know which family is this. When he then finds out, actually, there is no man behind this woman. This is two widows that have come back. She's a foreigner. All these things, he knows she is incredibly vulnerable. It's a lovely question in many ways, even though to us it makes us bristle. He's looking out for, okay, who is this family that is that vulnerable? And any woman that wasn't under the protection of a man in that society, and in many societies around the world today, was vulnerable to being attacked, was vulnerable to starvation. This wasn't just about being a bit lonely. This was actually life and death for these people. His servants, the first thing they pointed out was her race. And the Moabites were hated by the Jews of the day. This was a hated nation. And the thing is, what really struck me is that this is what prejudice does. The first thing it sees is race. The first thing it sees is you are different. It sees people as a group. It doesn't see any of the good qualities first. And yet actually they did also notice her good qualities. They go on and they say um, which family she's attached to. They knew that she'd returned with Naomi, that she'd gone over and above in coming back to look after and to care for Naomi. And they point out that she's a good worker. Now, the law that um, I'm talking about here is the gleaning law. In Leviticus 19... One of those books that we all love studying. Not. Um, there's a few bits, and it's actually titled in the Bible, almost random other laws. You know, this is just the sort of extra bits. These are the sort of side bits. Um, and it says, when you harvest your land, don't harvest right up to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings from the harvest. Don't strip your vineyard bare or go back and pack up the fo- pick up the fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am God. Your God. This is the type of God that we worship, the one who looks out for the vulnerable, the poor, the foreigner, the ones that are different within society for whatever reason. And the thing is, Boaz has a choice. He's the one with power in this situation. And he can go, okay, this is what the law says. She's allowed to come, she's allowed to gather. End of but she must stay behind my workers so she doesn't pick up the stuff that they are still picking up. She can't use the shelter because that's for my workers. All of that would have still come within the grounds of the law. She can be out there on her own. But actually, he doesn't say that. Boaz says, actually, I know what the purpose of this law is. It is to protect the vulnerable. And therefore, he says, come in close, stay close. Drink the water that my, my servants have actually gathered. It's not just about getting enough to survive. He's actually saying, you know, I need to make sure that you're safe and that you've got enough to live and that Naomi has enough to live. Bethlehem wasn't a big town. I actually had a quick look on Google Maps. It's a bit bigger these days. <laughs> but it's still only about five or six miles from the center of Jerusalem, as it was in those days. It's not very far, really. It's not very big. Um, And he was related. When Boaz looks at the law, he sees God as being nurturing. And he nurtures the people in his society. He nurtures those that are around him. Um, And he chooses to behave like the God that he worships. The thing is, you can tell what type of God we worship by how we behave. If we behave in a generous way, it's because we see our God as being generous. If we behave in a stingy way, it's because we see our God as being stingy. This says a lot about our picture of God as well. So... The other thing I think that I really struck me as I read this was it's really clear that what Boaz was doing was not normal. We can say, yes, he was fulfilling the law. He was doing what he was supposed to be doing. But he was clearly going over and above because he says, stay in my fields. You'll be safe in my fields. You go to their fields, you may not be safe. And from what we hear of the time and what still goes on in other places today we see that, actually, unless people are underneath the wings of someone who's going to protect, they are very vulnerable to being exploited, to being hurt. He literally provided protection to a very, very vulnerable woman. He didn't do this to gain anything. You know, I think sometimes we can look at this story, and because we know that eventually he marries Ruth, we can look and go, he was doing it because he liked her. I don't believe that's true. I think the fact that we can see that this was his normal practice means that actually he didn't do this to gain anything for himself. He did it because it was a loving, godly thing to do. And sometimes I think when we give money to charities or to the church or to people, are we expecting something back? Or are we doing that because it's a lovely, godly thing to do? When we support people... Are we kind to people because that is the loving thing to do to someone who is made in God's image? When we fulfill the laws, do we do it grudgingly or do we do it with the aim to bless people? Do we look at how we are going to lose out when laws change or do we look at actually how other people are going to be safer, more provided for as laws change or the other way around? So that's Boaz. Ruth, on the other hand, was vulnerable. Economically, physically, socially, I couldn't really come up with almost anyth- anyone who could be almost more vulnerable than Ruth was at this point in time, other than a child. In the same scenario, she was foreign from a hated nation, and sometimes I think our nation has become less welcoming to those from other nations, and that's not good. We should be welcoming to all. She was a woman. She was a widow. She had no protecting male. Like I say, in that society, that was right down at the bottom. Not only that, she wasn't just vulnerable herself, she was supporting another vulnerable woman, another widow. She had no land. She had no job. She was new to the area. I don't know how much of the local language she spoke, but she certainly would have had an accent which would have marked her out as being different. The thing is, you look down that list, she had no say in any of those things at all. She wasn't vulnerable because she'd done anything to make herself vulnerable. She was vulnerable because of who she was and who society said she was. But the thing is, we also see she had huge, huge strengths. She was loyal. She was loyal to her mother-in-law. She was very hardworking. Despite the risks of going out and gleaning, she went out and did that. She was faithful and full of faith that the God that she had come under his protection by coming to his nation would provide, and that those laws that he had put in place, the gleaning laws, would provide for her. Those were the choices that she made. To be loyal, to be hardworking, to be faithful. And the thing is, you know, it's like, okay, that's still a story from about 3,000 years ago. This is a long time ago. But actually, there are plenty of societies where this is actually still people's lives today. But it's not our experience in the UK in this year. You know? Gleaning is actually no longer legal in this country, which it did used to be. The thing is, there are times when we're like Boaz in this story, and there are times that we're like Ruth. There are also times that we're actually like Naomi where, for whatever reason, she wasn't going out and gleaning. She clearly wasn't actually able to even do that to help support herself. And I'm not trying to put people in boxes this morning. I'm looking at, actually, what can we learn from the two extremes? From the extreme of Boaz, who was the, the rich, he was the privileged one, and what can we learn from Ruth, who was the vulnerable, underprivileged person? Sometimes people are vulnerable because they've made mistakes, but the thing is, we've all made mistakes. If I overspend by 20 quid on my budget for the week, next month, that money be made back. That doesn't leave me in long-term debt. If I was already running on a budget that left me with zero pennies at the end of the month, that 20 pounds would be a massive, massive effect on my life. The thing is, most people are vulnerable not because of mistakes they've made, but because of things that they have no control over, like Ruth. It may be something in their family. It may be the loss of a job after a company has folded. It may be a physical illness, injury, infirmity. So let's not judge. Okay, we're too, we do it too easily. And... You know, as I look round, some of you I know very well, some of you I know a little. And some are in the Boaz privileged group, and some are in the Ruth vulnerable group. And we can at times switch between, and most of us are somewhere in between on that spectrum. The thing is, you know, I am fully aware. I am standing here and I am actually in the Boaz group. I'm aware of that fact. I I'm predominantly in that privileged group. I have a job. I have a family. I have a house. I can speak English. I'm middle-aged, much as I hate to actually admit it at times. (laughs) But actually, that gives you a certain standing within society. I am now physically healthy. I do know what it's like to have spent years in a wheelchair. I am white with a British-sounding name. And for years, I've kind of thought, what difference does that make? But I suspect that those of us who are here who are not white with a British-sounding name know the difference. Too often at work, I say to someone, next time you will be seeing Dr. Chun, Dr. Gautama. Other names, the first thing they ask every single time Are they British? That makes me realize I have the privilege of actually being in a position where nobody questions that of me because I have a British name. One of my colleagues has even turned around and said that because she has a British name and yet is Chinese, she doesn't get it in the same way until they walk in the door. I take that for granted. I know I take it for granted and I shouldn't. Um, I have had people refuse to see me because I'm a woman. Again, it shouldn't make a difference, but it clearly does for some people. And I think something that God's really been speaking to me over the last year or so, actually, but particularly this last week, because once you start preparing something like this, he really (laughs) nails it at you. Do I understand the freedom that those privileges give me? The freedom of having a job, a regular income. The freedom of being in a place where I have family around me and I have friends around me. Do I remember that actually I don't know what other people face? do I remember that most of that privilege is not because of anything I have done at all? And actually, I have to remember that. I'm not going to apologize for that position that I'm in. This is my place at this point in time, but how do I use that? Am I like Boaz in the way that I live my life? Or do I take it for granted? I have opportunities to show God's love in ways that many people do not. When you have a stable income, we can give. We can give to the church, we can give to charities, we can support others, we can help others. And I can choose to be generous, or I can choose to be protective of me and my little family. Boaz knew he had that power, and he chose to be generous. He understood his responsibilities. He didn't make assumptions. He didn't judge Ruth and turn around, and first thing he said, well, why is she here? Go away. He chose to love the vulnerable. He chose to be generous and not to gain anything for himself. Now, many of us are in similar positions to where I'm at. Um, the thing is, there are also those that are here this morning, there are those that people that we meet on a daily basis who are currently in that really vulnerable group. They don't have a job. They may have some physical problems. They may have language barriers. They may have race or gender barriers. They may be alone. There may be a history of trauma. And that's particularly true of those who are refugees. There are so many other factors that make people vulnerable, not all of which are visible. Not all of which they will admit to you. And the thing is that too often people tend to look at the vulnerable in our society and they blame them. They shouldn't do this. They shouldn't have done that. They should be doing but as we can see from Ruth, as we can see from the, even the list I've just given, those things are not people's fault. These are situations that people have found themselves in. People don't choose to become vulnerable. It's something that is pushed upon them. And they may not look vulnerable from the outside. So I think sometimes it's, it's very easy, though, to kind of go, oh. I can't do anything. I'm in that vulnerable group. But actually we see that Ruth chose to show God's love in the ways that she could show God's love. None of us are excused from showing God's love no matter where we are on that spectrum, whether we are at Ruth's end or whether we are at the Boaz end. Um, you know, Ruth, she showed huge love and loyalty to Naomi. Absolute immense love and loyalty there. Um, we don't know the details of actually her life in many ways. But we do know that she showed God's love. Um, we see that there are various laws that were there to protect. Um, the one I've read out about uh, the gleaning and gathering, which was to allow people to provide for themselves when they didn't have any land or any way of making money. Another one, also in Leviticus 25, verses 25 to 55, it talks about the guardian redeemer, Um, It just mentioned it briefly in the passage I read, Um, but actually next week there'll be a little bit more mention about the, the Guardian Redeemer, and that Guardian Redeemer was to allow families to get out of poverty. It was to break that systemic poverty. Land was to be returned to the family from which it came. So, that you didn't land up with generations after generation after generation being trapped in poverty. The family land had to stay within the family. What's really sad is that often those laws weren't followed through. Um, and we don't have a law of Jubilee, we don't have a law where the land goes back, we don't have a, la- a law that brings us all back to being equal. Socially, every 50 years. But what Boaz did was he actually saw the land of Israel as a place of protection and refuge. And I think what we as people, as individuals, have a, a responsibility to do is actually to make sure that Ebi is a place of safety and refuge for everybody. it would be lovely to see our nation being a place of safety and refuge for everybody. Do we want our, our church, our community, to be a place of safety and refuge? Do we want our nation to be that? Those of us who have a voice need to use it. And how we use that will look different I'm not saying how anybody should be doing anything politically. You know, don't don't hear me wrong here. It's we do have a welfare state, thank you, which is there to protect the vulnerable, but it doesn't always give an opportunity to work. Um, we have food banks, which provide food, but only in an emergency. We see things like tier funds that actually give people the opportunity to work, to support themselves, to maintain that dignity like Ruth was able to. Those who are paying tax and providing for the welfare state, what attitude do we have about that welfare state? How do we feel about charity giving? Do we begrudge it? or actually are we saying God has given to us? And we are going to be like him. And we are going to be generous. And we are going to honour and love people for who they are. So, I mean, um, Rachel earlier in her video did mention about, you know, the ones who are hit in in the cyclone in southern Africa are the most vulnerable. They were already vulnerable and they've been clobbered again. You know, how do we make sure that actually we maintain people's dignity and we give them opportunities to get out of that place? So do we always treat people as individuals, loved by God and with dignity? Or do we judge and make unfounded assumptions? Do we make judgments about those that are like Boaz, assuming that we know that they should be doing fill in the blank, when we don't know what they're already doing, we don't know how they're treating people? Do we make assumptions and judge those who are like Ruth, assuming that they must have done something wrong to get into that position? Do we make assumptions and judge those who are like Naomi? It's easy to read the story and say, well, why wasn't she going out and doing something? we don't know we don't have any right to judge or make assumptions and i think one of the things that god's really been talking to me about is is about making sure that we talk to and communicate with people that are actually in a different place from us not just to tick a box but genuinely to get to know people don't judge people and also have a think about how actually can you ju- how can you show god's love How can it be, you know, it may be giving time, it may be giving money, it may be watching out for that parent who needs an hour off and taking their child for that hour, or that lonely person who would welcome a visit and a drink of coffee. It may be many things, be imaginative, but make sure it's genuine love, whatever it is. And remember that when Jesus talks In Matthew 25, he says, Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Two weeks ago, at the end of um, Steve's sermon, Esther got up and shared a prayer that um, she'd come across that morning. It's one I'd heard before from Daniel Strickland. And as she read it, it's like, that is so relevant for Ruth too. Um, It was relevant for Ruth one, but it's really, really, really relevant for Ruth two. So we're going to do that again. Okay, Um, and hopefully, yes, they are readable. Um, So before we share communion together, I'd love it if you just stand with me and we'll do this. I've put the three bits up on there, so hopefully they will be big enough to read. And actually think about this in terms of Ruth, of Naomi, of Boaz. Okay, okay. So, I choose to hold my hands up as a symbol of surrender. My life is not about me. I surrender to your lordship. I surrender my preferences, prejudices, and position to you. My fears, finances, friends, and family to you. And holding hands out in front... I choose to hold out my hands as a symbol of generosity. What I have is not mine. I am only a steward of all that you have given me. I want to mirror the way that you've opened your hands to us and lavished your love and life upon us. I want to live an open-handed life in a closed fist culture. And hands forwards. I choose to hold my hands forward as a symbol of mission. I want to live for something greater than me. I want to embrace your kingdom mission. I want to embrace and welcome your mission to the lost, last, least, and lonely, the poor, powerless, privileged, and persecuted. Thank you, Lord, that you came and you were among the poorest of the poor. You know what that's like. And you showed huge love. You showed that love to us. You made it possible for us to know you. And to be able to become more like you. So Lord, help us in any position that we're in, in our lives at the moment. To actually show your love to others around us in a genuine and caring way. That we may be more like you. Amen. I do take your seats. Um, We're going to go into a time of communion. This is a remembrance of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He died so that we could be reconciled to God. So that we can know him. We can live life free and forgiven. That's what he's done for us. Now we can go and do it for other people. So as we remember what he did for us and thank him for what he did for us, there'll be people come and help me in a second, I hope, to to share this out. Um, He shared his body given for us and he poured out his blood for us that we can be forgiven. We do have a gluten-free option here. Um, and Derek normally wanders around with that, or I will. Um, but the, the bread and the juice will come round. Do take it. Do thank him. Do remember what he's done for us.